So it's good to be here. Um, like any good visiting pastor, they have an amazing title for their sermon. And today's sermon is, well, the Good Samaritan. It's what you find in your Bibles in Luke uh, 10, if you want to turn there. Of course, we get to Penticton, and I forgot a few things, forgot to cut my hair, and I forgot my Sunday attire. So thank you, winners, for coming to the rescue, and some barbershop, I forget where that was, but... But it was about uh, nine years ago. I think some of you might still be in the room. I know some of you are. I came out that door. I had just fumbled with how to put cufflinks on, which I still didn't do correctly at the time. And I stood right about here. And I got to see my now wife in her dress and her smile walk down that aisle. So it's good to be back after about nine years. I've been back since, but I haven't been up on here. So, if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 10, uh, we're going to be reading the story of the Good Samaritan. A couple months ago, I was at the most wonderful place called Tim Hortons. <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, Penticton and their city council for, I think, four they have, three or four they have here. I've been already. Um, so I drive up, and I walk to the front door, and what do I see? I see one of the handicapped stalls overtaken by a grocery cart. Actually, it was two grocery carts overflowing. And uh, with the two grocery carts were two homeless people, a man and a woman, and I proceeded to walk inside, and going through my head was, what? Some judgments. Like they could have parked anywhere. And so a few thoughts go through my head, and I took my medium ice cap and my old-fashioned plain donut, a great combo, and I sat down. And I could, I could see a bunch of others uh, in the restaurant staring. I couldn't hear the comments, but you knew that the comments were in what they saw. And then I saw a lady. She walked up to a Tim Hortons worker who was around sweeping up. And what did she do? She also made some comments, but the first thing I noticed was this. I saw her living out what I was actually thinking. It's like, I felt bad for, oh, here I am thinking that, but then I saw her and I'm like, I'm actually no different than her when she was verbalizing what I was actually feeling. And I thought, this can't be the case. I cannot sit here and just let someone outside maybe go hungry or thirsty. So I went up, actually I went outside first and I could feel the stairs following me. And I said, sir, because I think his girlfriend had gone inside, Anything I can get you. Um, he said just a hot drink would be fine. So I got him a large hot chocolate and uh, 20 Timbits for the both of them. And I walked back inside and I continued to see the stairs follow me. But I did what I thought I knew was right being a Christian. But we'll see later on as I talk with you that I'm not always a good Samaritan. Luke 10, 
verses 25 through 37. And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. So where are we? Well, we are between Luke 9.51 and Luke 19.47. This is one big passage, one big, uh, what's called Luke's travel narrative. 9.51, Jesus says he has set his eyes towards Jerusalem for his ascension. Luke 9-19 to 19 is actually the last six months of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And our specific context, that was our general, our specific context is Jesus has sent out his disciples and they have just returned saying, we have even cast out demons in your name, Jesus. And when he hears that, he says to the crowd, not just his disciples, I praise my Father who has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and has revealed them to infants. I have to say, it's great seeing these kids up here uh, in the morning. And I was thinking to myself, kids are always a good neighbor. I've never failed to see a kid be a bad neighbor. I'm sure there sometimes there are, but they are a good example. And then Jesus pulls his, his disciples to himself privately. And he says, you have seen, heard, and done things that prophets and kings have only dreamed of. And after all this, a certain lawyer, a scholar of the law, stood up. Verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So today we're going to be covering two points 
And there are two questions posed by the lawyer. First, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we're going to find out later he's going to ask, who is my neighbor? I'll deal more with those points specifically later on. We're just going to go through an exposition and exegesis of this text first. So what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is what he starts with. He's just heard Jesus say that God has hidden the kingdom from someone like him. And for Jewish understanding, it's that messianic kingdom, what they were all waiting for. At the start of Jesus' ministry, John inaugurates Jesus' coming, and what does he call the religious leaders? Brood of vipers. In front of the Jewish leaders, what does Jesus do? Well, he heals. He forgives sins. He claims to be Lord of the Sabbath. And on top of that, his miracles and his ministry and messages have caused the multitudes to what? Follow him. The lawyer was there looking to test Jesus. And so for the lawyer, he rightfully, and in his own mind, he righteously stands up and calls him teacher. But this is not a sign of respect. And this also confirms that he does not understand who Jesus is. Students, where did they sit? At their teacher's feet. After this parable, it says, then they went on to a different town, and what did they do? They went into Martha's house. And what did her sister Mary do? She sat at his feet. A confirmation that she understood who Jesus is. And in his own righteousness, standing, the lawyer asks, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a man who just said he doesn't have eternal life. I'm sure he's curious what this Jesus character has to say. Verse 26, And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? In your readings of the story of Jesus, have you ever noticed what Jesus does when he's asked accusatory questions? He asks them a question back. He wants to what? He wants to dig a bit deeper. He wants to get what's really on their mind. And so what Jesus does is he, by this, he invites the lawyer into what a conversation. The lawyer probably was transactional. What do I do to inherit eternal life? I will condemn you and then I will leave. That's what he was probably thinking. But Jesus reveals him to ask the question or answer the question so he can get to something deeper. And the deeper ish issue is this. How does it read to you? How have you interpreted the God-given law so that it reads in your favor? Verse 27, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This part, found in Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, what a great answer. Who also gives this as an answer? 
Well, Jesus, Matthew 22, 36 to 40, when, he's, when he is questioned by another lawyer. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the whole of the law and the prophets rest on these. So what do we have? We have that the scholar knew the law, but what's about to happen? He is about to be confronted with something unexpected. And Jesus said to him, verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this and live. Here, the, the lawyer has a very negative view of who Jesus was. And what does Jesus do? He agrees with him. Later on in Luke, and in, you'll find it in Matthew, they called Jesus demon-possessed, that he works for Beelzebul, the, the prince of rot, of dead bodies. We read in John 8, when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, when he says, your father is the devil. How do they respond to him? You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. But Jesus has the wherewithal, we can call it compassion too. He's agreeing with him. But not only does Jesus agree, but he also quotes scripture. Do this and live. The lawyer says, he pulls out Leviticus 19 and love your neighbor. What does it say in Leviticus 18? You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Jesus is telling the lawyer that he is on the same page. The lawyer has interpreted the law correctly. The lawyer could have walked away. But wait. The lawyer is still not on the same page as Jesus. Despite Jesus catching him off guard and agreeing with him, what Jesus has said with, do this and you will live, has struck the heart of the matter. And the lawyer knows it. And now, the lawyer who thinks so lowly of Jesus, probably full of pride, has to. Can we imagine? He has to keep the conversation going. Why? Because the simple reminder of what Scripture says has challenged him. We read, But what? But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And that right there is the problem. The scholar, the lawyer, knows the law and its demands, but he has justified himself in not fulfilling it. That he has to justify himself means that he has limitations not just on the law, but limitations on the law giver. We tell you, I'm going to read a couple portions of scripture. What, does, what would the lawyer have known about his neighbor? 
Exodus 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feeling of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 25, verse 35. Now in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Proverbs 5.10 And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of the alien. So here, we know it's obvious that we have an overwhelming, undeniable case that the scholar, the lawyer, knew who his neighbor was and how to treat them. There are no limitations. But we also know what the Jewish leaders had in mind. I wonder how close to their heart they held Psalm 139, verses 21 to 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. A Jewish proverb says, Eating bread with a Samaritan is like eating the flesh of swine. We read in Matthew 23, the heart of the Jewish leaders. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor and banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. We're in Luke 10, but in Luke 16... Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And I have already said, How do Jews treat, treat their own? John eight forty eight. And the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you, Jesus, are a Samaritan and have a demon? So what do we know? Well, we know a lot. We know that this lawyer knew who his neighbor was. But we also know that his view of his neighbor was quite small. Do you want to know what else was quite small? his understanding of God's love. Jesus saw this too, 
and as he should. He doesn't slough the man off. He doesn't tell him to just go away. He tells him a story. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. First Chronicles 24, what do we get? We get the breakup of the offices of priests and Levites. And what you'll find is that there are 24 priests, 24 Levites, which means each priest was to do about two weeks of work in the temple each year. That does not include holidays or the feasts. So, this priest is where he's going down to Jericho. What you also know is that priests did not live in Jerusalem. They lived outside. It can be easy to say, ah, here's a, a man of God going from God's place, the temple in Jerusalem, and he's going down to Jericho. Well, this isn't that allegorical. He was probably going down to Jericho because that's where he lived. Same with the Levite. Further, we also can't add to this story because that's what it is, a story. It would be for us to go too far to say that the priest was probably thinking, well, I can't go over there and get touched by him or touch him because then I'll become unclean and then I can't what? Maybe I can't help my neighbor. Or I'll have to go back up to Jerusalem, get cleansed again. That's not what the parable is telling us. What Jesus wants the lawyer to understand is that these two people who represented the Jewish establishment, who thought they loved God and loved others as themselves, had absolutely no love at all. Their system was bankrupt. And the truth of the law underneath it all is that love to God is expressed in love to one's neighbor. To put limits, boundaries, expectations on who your neighbor is, is to not just miss the point of what it means to love God, but to fail to act rightly. This is what is called disobedience, rebellion, sin. Let's carry on. Verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Is anybody in here experienced this kind of good neighbor affection? It is possible. Trust me, it is. 2003, September 5th, 
just before nine in the morning. I just got back from a week out at Anvil Island. Great place for a college and career retreat. And I'm heading back to work. I'm in Edmonton at the time, God's promised land. And, uh, ha ha ha, there we go. I love Penticton too. And I was working at a bottle depot, great job. And on my way to work, I get hit by a bus. I'm riding my pedal bike. I, I did a lot of biking in my early 20s. And, well, there you go. I bounce off the bus, bounce off the cement, and wake up about three days later um, in a hospital bed. Of course, with all the medication I was given, I had no memory of what happened at all. I woke up, but someone was there. My good friend, and as soon as I woke up, he woke up, and we kind of clenched clenched hands. I didn't know what was going on. I was out of it, but I knew he was there. And over the next few days, more people from my church started to show up. Football magazines. Here's a journal for you to write in if you want to. I get out of uh, the church. Face is still a mess. And I get tapped on the shoulder and it's just like, do you mind if we take an offering for you? Uh, yes, please. I didn't have any money for the oral surgery that I needed. And they raised thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to the point where I was completely fixed up and I had to give money back. And so I have been, although this is just a parable, I have been the recipient of what it means to experience the good Samaritan. I experienced the lavish love of the church that I was in. But can we see the lavish love of the Samaritan here? Can we see the contrast between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite? Can we see the difference between the Samaritan and the actual lawyer? For the lawyer, he was set out to theorize about who his neighbor is. And here we are only told that the Samaritan had unconditional compassion not just to meet the emergency need of the half-dead man, but went so far as to intentionally see the man brought back to complete restoration. I can only wonder what the lawyer is thinking. Remember, he's come to condemn Jesus. And now he's fully enthralled in the story, probably. A Samaritan in this parable is set up by Jesus to be the understanding of what is right in God's eyes. The Samaritans, half-breeds of Jews who intermarried with pagan Assyrians when the northern kingdom was taken into exile. Samaritans, the ones who scattered the bones of the dead in the southern kingdom when they rebuilt the temple. Samaritans, the ones who were hated ethnically and racially by the Jews. Samaritans? There are no good Samaritans to the lawyer. But Jesus still asks. He still invites the man into conversation. 
which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So what have we just seen? We have seen Jesus turn the question on its head. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? What has Jesus said? Who was the neighbor? And so the question that really matters is, am I a good neighbor? Here the Samaritan is the good neighbor, and the priest and the Levite were not. The lawyer who came to Jesus to test him has now himself been tested. The good Samaritan is the example for the lawyer. The lawyer who came to Jesus to find something wrong with him has been forced to look in on himself and find something wrong. Verse 37. And he said, the man or the one who showed mercy towards him. What does Jesus say? Go and do the same. Jesus is saying exactly what he just said in verse 28 when he says, do this and you will live. But he's taken it out of the theoretical realm and said, here's a story, what it actually looks like. The Samaritan doesn't have a name in this story. But you want to know what else happens? The lawyer still refuses to reference him as a Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy. The lawyer is still not on the same page as Jesus as he hasn't let go of his understanding of what a Samaritan actually is to him. What does this show? He has still put limitations on the law, on love, on God. And for some reason, Jesus, knowing that the lawyer still hasn't changed, he says, go and do the same. There's scholarships for the kids. I was able to go to AUC, NUC, CBC, CTS, Ambrose University College, it's now known as. I was able to be under the great professorship of Jerry Hall, taking Greek. I received some scholarships for my grades in Greek. Um, and what I try to do for every sermon is to do a Greek breakdown, not really theologically, but of the words. It's interesting, I didn't really know much about the English language at the age of 21 until I took Greek and then started to uh, understand basic language arts. So, Jesus says to close this parable, go and do Likewise. So, this do, this verb, is a what's called a present active imperative. We all know what an imperative is. It's something that you must do. With this being the case, a present active imperative, go and do likewise, we can phrase it this way. Go and do likewise every day, every moment of your life. And it was to this continual, lavish love of the Samaritan that the lawyer was to measure himself against. 
and the lawyer, as we've seen because of his overt justifications of the law, could not measure up. I began today by saying we have two questions that we need answered. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? So what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is nothing. There is nothing that we or the lawyer can do based on the law to inherit eternal life. The purpose of this parable was not to get the priestess to do better or to do the law correctly. In fact, outside of Jesus, no one can live up to this parable. Jesus uses the example of a Samaritan, but he's just a, he's just a character. He's not real. The Samaritans can't even be a good Samaritan according to what Jesus is trying to get across here. The be-all and end-all of this parable, remember, he has one person as his audience. And that's a self-righteous Jewish leader. The be-all and end-all of the parable is to crush the lawyer's self-righteousness in thinking that he can fulfill the law. This is also not a parable just of what it means to be kind. This is not a story meant to give you a mission or vision or a flagship slogan for your business or to end world hunger or to stop social justice. This is Jesus personally evangelizing a high-ranking Jewish official. Showing him that he is lost and needs to be found, showing him that the law will not keep it, but not only that, you cannot keep the law. That the lawyer, every one of us, is unrighteous according to the law and will not inherit eternal life. Paul says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. But as we have no response from the lawyer after Jesus says the final words, go and do likewise, I think it's fair to assume that he has not accepted the bad news about himself. Remember, Jesus can't get the good news across until you accept the bad news about yourself. And that is... His self-righteousness is actually his unrighteousness. And that is what will keep him from accepting the good news. I believe this parable was understandable to the lawyer. And there, right in front of him, right in front of the lawyer, was the means of eternal life. And the, the lawyer should have said, should have said, with all the information you've given me, Jesus, I ask again, what must I do then to inherit eternal life? So what must we do to inherit eternal life? Seems that an appropriate question for me to ask. We must know that God has loved us first and provided salvation through Jesus. 
we must die to ourselves and believe in Jesus. As John the Baptist said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, bear the fruits in keeping with repentance. And that can be quite summed up with Matthew 28, the Great Commission. It doesn't say, go and make converts. What does it say? Go and make disciples, passionately following Jesus Christ. So that's the eternal life question. It's not a works-based, but we need to respond to the salvation provided. And the second question, who is my neighbor? Well, we already know that's the wrong question, but we still have to ask, who is my neighbor? Everyone. Absolutely everyone. Especially your enemy. What a great contrast, the Jewish leader and the Samaritan. Jesus Christ was not mixing words. Everybody is your neighbor. So, in your life, is there someone that you choose to not be a neighbor to? Is there someone, I'll use some strong language, that you're revolted by, you despise them, everything about them just makes you clench your fist? Or it makes you say, sorry, I'm not free for coffee today. In my case, is there a homeless person you are so tired of seeing outside of the coffee shop you regularly go to that you have limited or shut off your communication with them? Eh, they're just too lazy. We don't have the same philosophy of life. Do you put conditions on dignifying another person because any part of their background What about those who have treated you poorly? They have not been a good neighbor to you. Is that justification for not being a good neighbor to them? If so, then Jesus' foundational question is for all of us. Am I a good neighbor without qualification, without condition, without expectation? And despite what a person has done, there's some connection. Have I forgotten that I was that half-dead man on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho and I had mercy put on me? I'll tell you this. How we treat our neighbor is a reflection of not just the work of God in our lives, but a reflection of of how much we're willing to let God work in our lives. So we've addressed that we cannot inherit salvation based on works. That's what the parable is all about, point blank. To Jesus, he had one person to talk to, that was a lawyer. Understand the parable? You cannot inherit eternal life. But as Christians, we can still look at the parable and pull those principles out of it, of who is my neighbor, and how to always act towards everybody.
what happens when we can't be, as Christians, good neighbors all the time? This good Samaritan was, here's a Samaritan, doing good all the time. When asked about what distinguished Christianity from all other religions, C.S. Lewis remarked with one word. What was that word? Grace. All-inclusive of love, of course. But grace. Given that which we don't deserve. And mercy. Given. Paul writes in Romans 7, 4-6. through 6, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Galatians 3 10 through 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, He who practices them shall live by them. Here's the best part. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would have received the promise of the Spirit through faith. Finally, very, very, very well-known verse. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the overwhelming never-ending love of God is ours because Christ has saved us and the Spirit resides in us. Our ability to love is not based on our own power, but is based on God who has equipped us, His children, to reach out and love others. Like the Samaritan, maybe here's the practical point. Maybe. It is the practical point. Like the Samaritan, if we see a need and can meet it, I would argue that there's nothing better that you can do than to meet that need. Now, because we're limited in our understanding, we are not omnipresent, there are some needs that we'll never see. There are some needs that we won't be able to meet. But if you see a need, and can meet it. I would say that that's what Jesus demands of us. 
or there's also the opportunity to be like the lawyer. We can entertain a bunch of justifications as to why A, oh, they don't actually need my help. They seem to be pushing that cart quite good themselves. Or B, they don't actually deserve my help. Cheryl and I were able to go to Germany this uh, last two weeks of May. I know some people in here went to uh, the Holy Land, and maybe that's something we can save for April 2021, right? April 2021, maybe that's our next destination. We had a wonderful time there. Got to do a lot of sightseeing, a lot of walking, a lot of relaxing. Then we came home. Cheryl and I have recently obtained positions called teaching parents. For the last seven months, we have lived in a group home. We uh, went from eight years of us just living alone to not only do we have five brand new teenagers, but we also have a co-worker every day at our place and an overnight staff every night at our place. We came home and after unpacking, we had a few days off to uh, get rid of the jet lag, which didn't uh, leave too quickly. And we had a few conversations to find out that the garage was unlocked from the laundry room door. When you move out from a house into a, a house where you, you get two suites upstairs in the basement, uh, you have a lot of belongings that you put in the garage. One of those belongings was Cheryl's wedding dress. We always keep the garage door locked only because we don't want some kids getting out of sight and because our belongings are back there. We got the news that one of the boys in the house, because he had nothing better to do, and because new staff were on, had left the garage unlocked, took the wedding dress, burned the wedding dress. And so I remember, the first thought was actually me standing up here and rem remembering her walk down and can I tell you what happened the next day? Cheryl had no ill will towards the boy. She was laughing with him. She was talking with him. She was being an example of what a good neighbor is. A person has just burned one of the most sentimental things that uh, we were holding on to. It didn't stop her at all from just showing the love that was ushering forth from her because the Spirit lives in her. Can I tell you how long it took me not to have a supervisory conversation because I'm the boss <laughs> when I'm on shift. Any guesses how long it took? Three weeks to have an actual heart-to-heart. -heart. If someone, if an observer was watching, maybe they wouldn't say it was too hard-to-heart. But for me, it was 
this is still so tough. I can tell you what to do. I can tell you to get up. I can tell you to leave on the bus. I can tell you to stop smoking. I can tell you to stop cursing in the house. But other than that, I am justified to not talk to you. I felt justified to let him know by my silence he was in the wrong. I was the lawyer. He was the Samaritan. We sing As the Deer this morning. First off, great song selection. I'm 36. A lot of these songs I was singing when I was in my teens, when I was at teens. Those were good years. You're my friend, and you are my brother, even though you are a king. I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. It's my favorite verse of that song. The problem was, I love you more than any other is not an allowance to not love any other. Love Jesus unconditionally with all that you have, but it can never, it will never be a reason to not love someone else. So yes, it's not just possible, but it's evident for me that having the lavish love of God within me, I can fail to be a good neighbor. Here I am preaching on the Good Samaritan, and I've just given you a very recent story of how I failed miserably, not just in one instance, for weeks to be a, a good neighbor. And so I have to echo with C.S. Lewis, the Apostle Paul, and the, the life and ministry of Jesus. Grace is what it is. Grace when you fail. Grace when you need strength. And grace when you doubt. A verse that is near and dear to me, a verse that I say to myself often in thankfulness and often in frustration, it is my favorite verse in Scripture. A verse that holds hope and reminds me how great a salvation I have and how much responsibility I bear as a child of God. Paul has just spoken that he as a Jew could not be justified by the law, something the lawyer refused to accept. And in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, what, a, what a great motto to have for your life. Friends, we are God's workmanship. God resides in us. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. And one day we will share in his glory. But until that day, never, ever work for salvation. Salvation is not quid pro quo, this for that. God, I've done this. Now your responsibility is to do that for me. But we have partaken in a salvation that must result in good works. And though we will fail at being a good neighbor all of the time, as children of God, we are not cast aside. God's grace and mercy continue to rest on us. And like Paul, 
we need to continue in faith to become more like Christ by letting him live through us and be reflected in what? In everything we do. There's a whole wide world out there. And for us, there's Penticton, there's Calgary. Who will taste and see that the Lord is good, says Psalm 34. Who will taste and see his love through us when we can see a need and meet it. And meet it. And we share that kindness in many ways, but two fundamental ways are the gospel and acts of compassion. And let us remember again that we, if you are here and you are saved, we were that half-dead man on that road. And Jesus had grace and mercy on us. And it would be unjust for those who have received mercy to then not go out and show mercy. Even those we have labeled our enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that you are, for all that you've done for us, for this story of the Good Samaritan. Father, we, no one can be the Good Samaritan, and that's why we need to rely on you. And so we thank you for the salvation that you brought on the cross at Golgotha. And as it says in Amos, when the lion roars in Jerusalem, we know that it was fulfilled in you on the cross when you yelled out, it is finished. So we thank you again for your grace, your mercy, and the love that you have in us that must shine forth to everyone. Pray this all in thankfulness. In Jesus' name.